and I totally underestimated the power of waves. Um, I was trying to get out the back of the set, and this huge set came through, and it was just pounding right down on top of me. I couldn't duck dive underneath. It was just landing straight on top of me, slamming me against the board, knocked the wind out of me. There were times when I didn't come up for a breath between waves, and I thought, man, am I ever going to come up under this? <laughs> um, it's freaky, you know? I, I've seen these Red Bull clips where you see these monster waves, and it's just this huge slab and there's this tiny speck of a surfer in it, and then it just folds him into the ocean and rolls him up, and he's gone. I get chills when I watch that. Like, my stomach, even right now talking about it, is like, just turmoil, inner turmoil. I, like, clench up in fear, and I'm transfixed as I watch. I, like, can't tear my eyes away from it even. Um, I'm I'm scared, right? Like, I'm scarred by big waves. I, I can't cope with them. Six foot, and I tap out, I'm big chicken. But underestimating something can be really dangerous. There's a wisdom in seeing something that's powerful and fearing it. Imagine underestimating God. Imagine getting God wrong and not noticing who he is and what he is. That would be huge. We see Jesus in this passage for who he really is. And the curtain gets pulled back on him And we can see that he's someone that we don't really want to mess with. Getting Jesus wrong and underestimating him could be the worst mistake you ever make. And it's a dangerous mistake. And us, as we live our our lives on the central coast um, in the 21st century, I reckon it's a mistake that we're pretty vulnerable to be able to make. Underestimating God. Why don't I pray before we jump into that? Heavenly Father, um, I pray that we would be able to see you clearly, your great and awesome power, and that you would um, yeah, give us hearts that would be able to respond to that. In, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Matthew 17, as um, Mitch just read. And like I said, this passage tonight reveals that Jesus is the last person that you want to underestimate. And I want us to see that together. So my first point is that Jesus is incomparably glorious. If I can get that slide up, that would be epic. So there's a couple of things underneath this that I'm going to go through um, that he's incomparably glorious in, right? It's that his glory eclipses everyone else's. It's that he's got the glory of God and lastly, it's that he's gloriously compassionate. So the first sub-point that we're going to hit under that is that Jesus' glory eclipses everyone else's. Um, let's read, starting in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, you could say these blokes are Jesus' closest buddies, they're his best friends among the disciples, and he's taking them up the mountain by themselves, because he's got something that he's going to show just then, just them. So what does he show them on the mountain? Well, verse 2, it says, there he was transfigured before them. Now, that's a weird word, right? Transfigured. We don't really come across that word much. Um, What does it mean? What does it mean to be transfigured? What's going on? Well, there's a bit of detail of what that looks like. Um, Pick up the rest of verse 2. It says, his face shone like the sun, And his clothes became white as light. Now, 
I can imagine maybe what this looks like. You've got the disciples and they're, they're walking side by side with Jesus up this mountain and all of a sudden Jesus begins to just glow, like his face starts glowing and then they can see that he's as bright as the sun and they, they look at his clothes and they're like whiter than your mum could ever wash him. Maybe, maybe he goes a bit ahead of him and he like turns around and just starts like super saining in front of him. He's like, ah, just roaring with power. Maybe it's something like that. Whatever it is, it's a moment that the disciples actually see who Jesus is as the Son of God, the Messiah. It's like he's transforming in front of them, but not becoming something he's not, but showing them what he really is. It's as if this curtain, like I said before, gets pulled, be, um, pulled back and we can see the reality of Jesus. What happens next? Well, have a look in verse 3. It says, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. What's going on? Like, is this some sort of psychedelic vision that the disciples are seeing? All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah just come out of nowhere and start talking to Jesus? You've got to admit, this is pretty strange, right? What's happening here? It's like these guys are Jesus' entourage. They're like his hype team, and they're like, woo, cheering next to Jesus and having a chat with him. But you know, the point of a hype team is not to look good themselves, it's to make the person they're hyping look good, right? And who's Jesus got for his hype team? Well, he's got Moses and Elijah, like only the flipping biggest guys in the Old Testament that you can get, right? And that's his hype team. If you're a Jew, you'd be foaming at the mouth. This would be epic. This would be so awesome to watch. Jesus, Moses, Elijah, what? Now, I reckon there's some meaning to it though, right? That Moses is the guy who the whole law comes through in the Old Testament and that Elijah is this crazy powerful prophet who stops rain and raises people from the dead and that Jesus is at the centre of them, blazing with power, is kind of like saying, Jesus is the fulfilment of all the law and all the prophets. And he outblazes them. He shines like between them. He's like transfigured between them, going nuts with power, right? This is a moment that Jesus totally eclipses them in awesomeness. Now, this would be pretty sick for Peter, James and John just watching. I reckon their eyes would be like bleeding from the awesomeness of it, right? Jesus is super saning in front of them and they've got their biggest heroes there. They'd be going wild, Right? Now, that's the first thing I want you to see, that his glory eclipses everyone else's. But the second thing is that Jesus himself has the glory of God. Have a look in verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Look, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Again, what's going on here? Like, this is weird. Is Peter just freaking out and he's like fangirling and he can't like help himself and he doesn't know what to do and he's like, do you guys want me to do like a Macca's run? Can I get you a coffee? I can build tents. Do you want me to build a tent for you? That's, that's a good idea, right? Is that Peter? What's he doing? Like, is he just going nuts? What's going on? In another account in the Gospel of Luke, it says he doesn't even know what he's saying. He goes, I want to build a tent. He doesn't know what he's saying. What's with this? Or, that's one option, or... Could he be like, oh, 
my three biggest heroes ever, Jesus, Moses, Elijah. I just want to chill on this mountain as long as we can. I'm going to build some tents and we're going to camp here and let's see how long this conversation goes. Potentially, maybe, that's actually one idea of why he's suggesting to build a tent, so it's possible. Or does Peter recognise something about what's going on and see that this is a moment when God's glory is revealed in Jesus? In the Old Testament, um, God's glory is too awesome to be witnessed by anyone, so that if anyone were to be in the presence of God's glory, they would die. And God makes a protection, a provision, so that His glory is, is um, concealed. And it's called the tabernacle, right? And it literally means dwelling place. And what is that? It's a tent, so that it conceals God's glory and people don't die by it, right? Is this what Peter's thinking? Now, if it is, I think he's onto something because that's exactly what happens next. Have a look at verse 5. It says, While they were still speaking, a bright cloud came down and covered them. This is God's um, God's glory being covered. And check out what happens next. Still in verse 5, it says, A voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. To our ears, I reckon this is yet another thing in this passage, which just sounds a bit weird. I thought Jesus was God. Yet here we have this voice from the cloud saying, this is my son. So the voice is obviously God, if it's saying that Jesus is his son. Now, how can Jesus be both God the Father and the Son? How could he be God, yet also Jesus? Like, if I were to take you to John 1, we would read about Jesus being the Word, the Word of God, and it would say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. How is Jesus both God and God's Son? Now, I can understand why people would, I don't know, just not be able to hack this and they'd say, well, obviously, Jesus is not God if he's the Son. He's obviously come from God. But it's more complex than that. And I want you to have a look at Isaiah 9.6. should be up on the screens here. Isaiah 9.6 says, well, I'll just wait until it pops up. Have you got it there? Or? Yeah, sick. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, that's Jesus that he's speaking about, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. See how Jesus can be called the Son of God, and this is talking about Jesus as the Son, but also Mighty God an everlasting Father. This is a prophecy from Isaiah speaking about Jesus, but calling Him Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Jesus the Son and God the Father aren't two separate independent beings, but exist at the same time and share the same nature. As Christians, we believe in one God, 
It's mind-bending, but it's a complex truth behind the nature of the Trinity. So when the disciples hear, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, they rightly understand that they are in the presence of God. Jesus is the glory of God. In Jesus, God's glory is revealed. It's a glory that God shares with Jesus because Jesus is God. That's the second thing that we see. The third thing, the third way that we see Jesus is incomparably glorious is that he's gloriously compassionate. Have a look at the disciples' reaction when they hear God's voice over his son. In verse 6 it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Now, when's the last time you guys were afraid? You think of a time in your life when you were really freaking out. I can think of maybe a movie I watched where I was like, just real tight in a chair, like a coiled up spring, and as soon as something scary happens, it's just like, wow, boom, you're like so friggin' scared, right? Or um, we used to have this cat, and every time there was a thunderstorm, it would, it would just like tear the house apart. It would just be like, <laughs> curtains are shredded, and man, it, like, it really freaked out. It was a scared cat. Man, maybe that was you, this last storm that we've had, and you were shredding up the house. But... Have you ever been flattened by something that scares you so much that you just fall over, face down, terrified? That's the disciples here. They're so scared that they hit the ground. I can imagine them just in fetal position, like rocking and crying as their heads are on the ground, flat out. See, to be in the presence of God should mean that we're struck down. God is actually someone we should be afraid of because he's the great and awesome creator of the universe and he's perfectly righteous. See, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God sends them out of the garden and he puts an angel there to guard the entry to the garden because if we were to re-enter God's presence as a sinner, we would die. God's righteousness can't excuse the presence of sin and it can't be okay with sin. So as soon as sin enters the presence of God, it's destroyed and obliterated. Now, I don't know how you're feeling as I say these things. You might be processing something inside you which kind of feels like, man, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't sound like God's good, that he would destroy us as soon as we enter his presence. How... How is that nice? How is that loving? But imagine a God who was okay with sin. Imagine a God who was okay to have sin and evilness and immorality around him, contaminating his goodness and everything that is good. That would be a God who tolerates immorality and lies and deception. No. God is good and trustworthy. If heaven is an eternity with that God, we can trust that he will be good and that life will no longer be stained by sin. Let me tell you, it is good news that God does not tolerate sin. 
And I wouldn't want a God any other way. So we should fear God and His righteousness because of our sin. We're not qualified to spend an eternity with God. But, verse 7, Jesus came down and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. What a comfort that God sends his perfectly righteous son to live among the unrighteous, not to destroy them, but to save them. This is God's love and mercy and compassion that he would send his son into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. And that at great cost to himself by his death on the cross. What a story. Far out. Like, this is a crazy story so far. Jesus is incomparably glorious, that his glory eclipses everyone else. He's gloriously God and he's gloriously compassionate compassionate to save us. And what did that voice say when the cloud came down and concealed his glory? It was the voice of God back in verse 5. It said, This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Because of who Jesus is, that he's God, he's compassionate and unrivaled in power, Every word that comes from his mouth is one to be carefully taken heed of. And that's a challenge to us, right? Coasties, cooler than cool. Like To listen to somebody else is to bow down to their awesomeness and acknowledge it. And I reckon our culture doesn't want to do that. It wants to flick Jesus aside as irrelevant. But if this is true about Jesus that he's God, he has God's glory, his glory is unrivaled, it shows that he is relevant to us and relevant to everyone. Because if you live a life that ignores the fact that his God is a serious underestimation of Jesus, there's great danger in this. You're ignoring the single most powerful person in the universe. It's a mistake to underestimate Jesus, just like it's a mistake to underestimate surf that's going to pump you. Now, we see in a minute, in the rest of this passage, that some make this mistake of underestimating Jesus, and I don't want you to make their mistake. So, my my second point is, don't make the same mistake twice. Keep reading with me in verse 9. It says, As they are coming down the mountain... Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Okay, stop there. There's a puzzle going on here, right? In the Jewish timeline, the prophecies say that this bloke Elijah has to come before Jesus comes in order to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus, right? So the puzzle is, if the Messiah has arrived, what happened to Elijah? So, verse 11, Jesus replies, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, 
but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Essentially, Jesus answers their question by saying, John the Baptist was Elijah. And he did come before me, and he did prepare the way for the Messiah. But, do you notice what Jesus says about John the Baptist? Have a look in verse 12, it says, They didn't recognize him, and they did to him everything they wished. Now, what was that? Well, they killed him. They chopped off his head, beheaded him, and delivered it to King Herod on a silver platter. That's what they did to Elijah. And how does Jesus finish verse 12? He says, in the same way, in the same way that they treated John the Baptist, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Just as some didn't recognize John, some didn't recognize Jesus. And like they executed John, they executed Jesus. In ignorance of who Jesus is, they reject him and execute him. Now, Peter, this is the disciple who's on the mount with Jesus, Peter thinks about this later and he preaches on this very sort of, this incident in Acts chapter 3. And we're going to all flick over to Acts chapter 3 now and this is where we'll finish the talk. So come over to Acts 3. It's just a few books to your right. And we're going to start in verse 17. And this is Peter um, Peter reflecting on the ignorance of those who killed Jesus, who executed him. So in verse 17 it says... Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Now, just stop there a moment. That's to say that Jesus suffered according to God's plan. Jesus didn't get his life taken away from him by force but willingly laid it down in perfect alignment with the will of God. And this makes sense, doesn't it? We've just seen Jesus transfigured in awesome power as God himself. Jesus isn't someone that could be forced against his will to give up his life and go to the cross. He's too powerful for that. You couldn't make him do that, but... He goes to the cross and God fulfills his plans through the ignorance of those who execute him. Now, we are all ignorant of Jesus at some point in our lives. What's the only thing that we can do once we've been ignorant of who Jesus is? It's to repent. Turn around. See Jesus for who he is. Have a look at verse 19 in Acts chapter 3. It says... Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who 
who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Now, how crazy is this? Peter calls the same people who killed Jesus to repent and have their sins wiped out. The very people who killed Jesus are able to be forgiven. Now, this crowd that would have been that Peter would have been speaking to, they may not all have been at the, the execution site of Jesus, right? But even if they all weren't present, Peter can say of their generation in Acts chapter 3, verse 14, just a little bit back, that you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. If we reject or disown God today, we're no different to those who rejected and disowned Jesus over 2,000 years ago. If your life was lifted up out of the 21st century and transported back to the 1st century, Peter would have these words for you. You killed the author of life. Isn't this true? That it's for our sin that Jesus makes his way to the cross? And each of the times that we've rejected and rebelled against God is like a hammer stroke to the nails through his hands and feet. But isn't this profound? Jesus died for the very ones who nailed him to the cross. In our ignorance, we killed the Messiah. We reject him. Our rejection of Jesus is the same as those who executed him. Every time we say, my way is better, we spit on him. And when we say, I own my life, it's a mockery of the God who made you. And every time we do what we know is wrong, we smash a hammer against the nails. And the blatant sin of the party scene where you throw your senses away to alcohol and where you throw your body away to meaningless sex is jeering at Jesus naked on the cross. We have all done this. We have all done the most horrible things, the worst things, to kill the author of life and nail him to the cross. You've got to repent. And you might be sitting here and you think, man, my, my life's too messed up for Jesus to forgive me. I've done so many bad things and I've done them over and over and over again. I've even asked for forgiveness for the things that I've done. But I've gone straight back to doing them again. And I know it's so wrong, but I can't help myself. Now, how could I accept God? How could God accept me? I'm too far from being saved. I've rejected God so many times that surely he would reject me by now. I have been in this exact place before in my life. But Jesus' words on the cross, what does he say? Some of them, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even in the act of nailing Jesus to the cross, Jesus wants forgiveness for his enemies. Friends, if forgiveness was there for those who executed Jesus 2,000 years ago, who drew out his blood hung him naked on a cross, mocked him and spat on him, he will forgive us too. 
None of us are too far from the forgiveness of God that he has for us in his son, Jesus. Repent. Ask forgiveness. And your sin is wiped away. There's great danger in continuing in unrepentance. Have a look in verse 21. We're still in Acts chapter 3. Verse 21 says, Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Now, this is Moses way back in Deuteronomy, and he's saying that a prophet will come, one like me. We've seen on the, on the mount the, where Jesus is transfigured, Jesus is like Moses, but he's greater than Moses and eclipses him. He blows him out, right? What does Moses say of Jesus? You must listen to everything he tells you. And the voice in Matthew 17, it booms the same message. Listen to him. To not do so would be to ignore God. It's a rejection to shut your ears off to God. Here in Acts chapter 3, Peter drives home the reason why we must listen to him. Have a look in verse 23. It says, Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. This is serious. It's to be cut off from the people of God. To continue in rejection of Jesus is a dangerous path to walk because it leads to a dead end, to be cut off. It's a decision you've got to make. It's a decision you get to make. We've already made the mistake of rejecting Jesus at some point in our life. But don't make the mistake of rejecting the call to repent. That's something you can't come back from. Some of us here have made that decision to turn and repent, to listen to Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord. But there's some of you here tonight who haven't made that decision yet. Tonight's an invitation to repent. Don't continue rejecting Jesus. Listen to him. Now, this might sound big and scary because you're wondering, what does that look like to listen to Jesus? Well, stick with us as we work through Matthew because you'll see more and more what it is to live a life of listening to Jesus, that his words are good, wise, that his words are life-giving, but it begins with turning and asking forgiveness for rejecting Jesus. I'm going to do that now. And you can follow along with me as I pray and say, Amen, if you've said that prayer for yourself. So why don't I pray for us all now? Lord God, we have lived lives of rejecting you as Lord of all. It's our sin that led Jesus to the cross and we can say it's us who nailed him there and spat on him and mocked him. We are deeply sorry not to recognize you as Lord in our life. Father, forgive us. Thank you that on the cross this is the very thing that you accomplish, that forgiveness is made possible through Jesus. 
Please let us live lives that follow you and acknowledge you as King. Amen.